Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. This is Sarah. Welcome to episode five of Dirty Drinks. I am here with Dr. Starlin this morning. How are you today, Dr. Starlin? I'm doing well, Sarah. Glad that uh, we are back here talking again to one of our colleagues this morning. We are. And um, you just got back from vacation. So how was your vacation? It was good to get away, but unfortunately, coming back, things have gotten a little crazier since I was gone. So uh, Monday morning after returning from a trip is always uh, uh, interesting, to say the least. There's extra coffee today, right? Extra caffeine of some type. I actually don't drink coffee. Oh, we didn't learn that about you yet. You're not a coffee drinker. (laughs) I'm sure more will come out as time goes on. I'm sure it will. Well, we are super excited for our guest today. Um, You know her better than I do. Would you like to introduce her? Yeah, we are super excited to have Kelly Cockut, one of my colleagues in infectious disease, who is also a critical care physician, join us today. She's one of the medical directors for infection prevention here at Nebraska Medicine, as well as probably multiple other hats that she gets pulled into. Seems like every meeting I go to, I see her name on the list as well. So welcome, Kelly. Glad to have you. Thank you. And it's great to be here. So uh, Dr. Cockett, Would you like to introduce yourself a little bit, where you're from, what you do, and kind of how you got into your role? Sure. So I'm, as you heard, Kelly Cockett. I'm originally from northern Minnesota, so you'll hear the accent occasionally pop out. Um, But I grew up around 15 minutes south of the western tip of Lake Superior, so nearly Canadian, and have slowly migrated south through my medical school residency and fellowship training. And um, I am an infectious disease and critical care physician, meaning that I actually see patients both for infectious diseases and also I see patients in the intensive care unit as a primary ICU doc. And then when I moved to Nebraska, I also took on a role as an associate director for infection control and hospital epidemiology. Um, So my days have been pre-pandemic. We're very mixed with general ID the ICU, and then really focusing on infection prevention in the ICUs surrounding central venous catheters and prevention of infection with CLABSI and ventilator-associated pneumonia. Um, As the pandemic has hit and shifted, I definitely found my role shifting to have a much broader involvement, um, I think as Rick was alluding to, with um, being very involved with a lot of the administrative development of protocols and practices for the organization as it related to um, COVID-19. And um, since that time, I have also just um, transitioned into a new medical directorship of medical quality for Nebraska medicine in addition. So my time is almost 50-50 split at this point between patient care and administrative work. So you wear a lot of hats then, right? I have a lot of hats. I had forgotten about the new medical directorship. Congratulations on that. So how does one be an infectious disease doctor and wear that hat and then become a critical care doctor and wear that hat uh, kind of either separately or at the same time? It, uh, it seems very complicated. It seems really complicated, but you know, my elevator pitch when I was a resident is probably the same that it is today, 
When I work in an intensive care unit, like it or not, I practice ID every single day. I either think my patients are infected or have sepsis, and I'm trying to evaluate or treat infection, or I'm putting my patients at risk with invasive devices like central lines or ventilators that put them at risk for different types of infections like that CLABC or ventilator-associated pneumonia. So for me, I saw them as very much intertwined and a potential niche to come in and have that expertise that most people don't have between actually understanding the data on how to prevent a collapse and being the person who puts the line in. That brings up a really good point, Dr. Cockett, of, you know, so much of medicine, just medicine in general, is about preventing disease, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's our main goal is to prevent and treat diseases and whether or not they are something that's genetic or congenital or infectious, we're still in that kind of disease process. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think trying to focus on, in mind, almost the extreme side of life-saving critical illness, but also preventing further complications simultaneously was really where the first, you know, essentially five years of my career focused. And now, honestly, almost everything I do is focused on preventing transmission of COVID-19 and preventing deaths in the hospital as it relates to COVID-19 while still trying to protect healthcare for the non-COVID patients who are coming in who need care in the midst of this pandemic and our variable surges we've had. So one of the things you mentioned, uh, uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia, that uh, that's, that sounds really bad. Um, <laughs> um, Obviously, you'd think that people are on the ventilator because they have something where they need assistance with breathing. So you're saying that a big part of your work and efforts has been to prevent them from getting another problem, a pneumonia, while they're on the ventilator. How does that yeah. work? Yeah, so it's a really good question. Um, so it, it is bad to get another um, infection on top of whatever got you on the ventilator in the first place, um, for sure. And for some people, it's because their lungs didn't work due to infection or blood clot or something else with their lungs. For some people, they're on a ventilator because their brains don't work and we need to protect their airway to keep them from getting a pneumonia. Um, so we see patients of all kinds of reasons that they have to be on a ventilator. And we actually look at it in a step-by-step -step fashion. So ventilator-associated pneumonias really are the end diagnosis. But we actually now look at things called ventilator-associated conditions or events, which is after someone's been on the ventilator for a period of time, if they start getting worse on the ventilator, meaning they need more pressure or more oxygen or just more support from the ventilator, then we know that there's certainly quality metrics related to those changes. So if you hit that threshold of change after 48 hours of being stable, then the outcomes are more concerning. You may be on the ventilator longer, in the ICU longer, higher levels of cost of care, and then obviously more opportunity to get further complications. So really trying to look at what can we do to prevent those complications from the minute we decide a patient might need a ventilator till the time we take them off of one? And how do we optimize that care as much as possible in really arguably the, some of the sickest patients you know, in the hospital? So with those uh, ventilator-associated infections, did you find that that happened, like was there the same prevalence pre-COVID and post-COVID with those? Or has that risen since the pandemic started? 
It's complicated. <laughs> so, and I'll tell you why. So when we normally look at these events, we really only look at them every 14 days or so. So you really can't get, you know, a new one every single day because you need to resolve that first insult, essentially, if you will, where there is a ventilator associated condition. Normally, we would be able to say, oh, if you have a pneumonia and we treat you and the pneumonia goes away, we don't need to reassess it or get new cultures. COVID-19 made it a little difficult to really trace that information because we would keep these patients in airborne isolation for their COVID, but we couldn't make the COVID go away. So when we would get tests after day 14 on some of these patients to get them removed from isolation, it actually triggered additional ventilator-associated pneumonias in the system because COVID-19 was not considered an exemption if for a ventilator-associated pneumonia if you were, were removing them from isolation. They don't care why you get the test, but if you got one and it was positive, you could actually have these increased cases. So there is definitely a shift that we've seen in HAIs or healthcare-associated infections, both in VAEs and VAPs, but also in many of the other ones, including things like CLABSI or CAUTI potentially in some areas, really based on how long patients have been in the ICU with COVID, how much support they need, and frankly, how many resources were limited in those hospital settings and geographic areas that may have put patients at increased unprecedented risk for HAIs because of all of the repercussions in the pandemic. Very interesting, very interesting. When you were, you said you, when you were a resident, you were looking at these as kind of working together and everything else. Did you also imagine that you would be the owner of multiple policies that Nebraska Medicine has uh, that uh, were helped to, to help patients and also to protect the staff that are caring for all the patients in the midst of this pandemic? And no. <laughs> so, although ironically, I did actually get recruited here during um, the Ebola outbreaks. That's part of how I ended up at Nebraska Medicine and UNMC. Um, I never imagined that. And actually, when in January 2020, when we were really starting that pandemic planning process again here, um, I actually had just wanted to sit in and listen to the process because I had taken care of patients, you know, during H1N1. And I had been cursorily involved with some of the you know, policies related to Ebola when I was a fellow on what do we do if we end up with an Ebola rule-out patient here, but I had never really kind of seen the whole process. And so I just kind of wanted to be a fly on the wall. And shortly thereafter, I was no longer a fly on the wall and I was kind of thrown in and um, stayed there um, in the middle of it for much longer than I would have ever um, envisioned. For our listeners, how much manpower hours or woman power hours or whatever you want to call it, do you think went into all of the careful planning uh, and uh, things that we've had to do here at Nebraska Medicine to make sure that patients and colleagues have been safe? Oh my gosh. I don't even think I could begin to estimate it. I can tell you that um, in the early winter spring of 2020, I know many of us were working seven days a week and working 12 to 16 hour days for weeks, if not months, um, to get these things rolled out. I mean, most of us, you know, canceled all our vacations and said we'd be on call, you know, continuously to help. Um, I mean, I think, and that's, I mean, that's just like, you know, a couple of us at a time that I can think of knowing we were working that way. When you look at the entire team administratively, 
from all of the different aspects, from employee health and infection control and administrative leadership and nursing leadership and quality. I mean, you're well into the thousands, hundreds of thousands of hours over the last year. I have no doubt combined. I agree. It's been amazing how everybody's pulled together and, uh, as you said, canceled other plans and done everything that we can to try to keep patients and colleagues safe and figure out the best protocols for doing this. Now, have we gotten everything right along the way? I mean, I, I don't know, but I know that we've done the best we can with the information that we've had at hand at that point in time, which I think is the best you can do, right? Yeah, I mean, we had, we knew so little and information was evolving so quickly. I think we did the best we could. I think that we came up with policies and looked at where we needed contingencies early. We definitely became a resource for people locally, regionally, and frankly, around the country, if not internationally, with allowing our policies to be outward facing, which was Again, a completely unique experience to get phone calls from hospitals from around the country saying, hey, what's your current protocol? How are you guys doing this? Can you share it so we can start somewhere? Um, which was humbling and also slightly terrifying because we were operating you know, in what we thought was the best case scenarios with limited data about this virus, but trying to reflect back on Ebola and SARS and MERS and you know, influenza even. What did we know about other viruses? and preparedness at our organization and how could we do our best to make good judgment and come up with the safest policies we could. I think when you look overall at our healthcare workforce and our times of highest surge capacity, I honestly think we did phenomenally well in the circumstances which were dire. I think that really speaks to the, just the compassion and the empathy of all of our healthcare workers. You know, I think that a lot of people don't understand that we, um, we did, we canceled our plans and we made ourselves available just for the health and safety of our fellow humans, you know, just to be there during this pandemic. So um, kudos to everybody on the team and all the healthcare workers out there. It's been a rough 18 months, but we are so appreciative of everyone that has had boots on the ground. I am curious, I know you said you uh, grew up in Minnesota, um, almost Canadian, but what started you down the path of infectious diseases when you were uh, first, you know, like trying to figure out what you wanted to do with your life? Oh, that's a great question. Um, and this is probably going to be like the worst admission ever for an infectious disease and infection control <laughs> podcast. Um, I didn't decide first on infectious diseases. I actually had decided on critical care first and I hated pulmonary medicine. <laughs> Like I could not envision myself doing pulmonary clinic or pulmonary consults. I really wasn't excited about it. And the things that I liked in pulmonary medicine were really like the transplant patients or the cystic fibrosis patients who had all of these crazy infections. But we really didn't have as much exposure to things like infection control and residency, which is still very much true for most residency programs and honestly, little exposure in fellowships even. Um, so as I kind of thought about what I really liked in the ICU and from different areas, um, I really did enjoy the infectious diseases component of it because for me also both critical care and infectious diseases, although people tell me all the time, my brain must work differently in each service. It really doesn't. They're both specialties in which it can be any organ system, anytime, and it's unpredictable at any moment. And so that lack of repetitiveness, 
the constant change, um, you know, the never really knowing what the next day would bring was something I really loved. And so although it was a very atypical road, I decided I was going to try to do both, um, which led to, you know, having to reach out to programs across the country, seeing if anybody would host a dual ID critical care fellow at the time, because there really were very few, if any, outside of the NIH established training programs um, that would train someone to ultimately land in an academic center doing both. So I kind of chose critical care first and then landed on marrying it with infectious diseases. That's awesome. So you're a bit of a unicorn in the field, right? I don't know what I am and I'm not sure if unicorn is the right (laughs) phrase, but I'm a something. (laughs) Maybe it's more of the black sheep. I'm still not sure. (laughs) It takes all kinds to make the world go around, doesn't it? (laughs) Diversity of thought is valuable. It is. So you mentioned that you were getting recruited to Nebraska or doing your job search during the Ebola, I assume 2014 timeframe. Um, what drew you to uh, Nebraska medicine? Well, I don't know. Do you want the honest story? <laughs> it must have been our 90 degree heat that you had that you don't have up near Canada. Uh, no. Um, so actually, I was in my fellowships at um, Mayo Clinic and I was in my ID fellowship in Rochester there. And there was ongoing work on being a regional support area if Ebola cases came in. And so I had been involved with several of the development of policies of what do we do if we have an Ebola patient? How do we manage that? And there was a core group of faculty from Rochester, actually, that came to UNMC Nebraska Medicine from both critical care and ID to learn about the biocontainment unit. And I had really had not started applying for jobs completely yet. I was off cycle due to having kids. Um, and so I hadn't quite gotten there. And both the ID and critical care faculty came back and approached me and they're like, hey, there's these people from Nebraska that are probably going to talk to you because we happen to mention that we have this like ID critical care person. And at that time, you know, the biocontainment unit team had really realized the value of having critical care engaged in the biocontainment unit team with ID for the Ebola patients who had become much more sick and needed that level of support. So my first um, engagement was actually talking with um, Angela Hewlett um, and sending her an email being like, hey, I've got your email address and I'm supposed to talk to you. (laughs) And that's all I knew. (laughs) And then it led to a series of interviews And ultimately, when I looked at the options I had on the table, um, we decided to transplant to Nebraska and uh, give it a shot. And, you know, I've been here now for several years and still planning on staying. So awesome. Awesome. It's always good to have uh, uh, you on uh, meetings and conferences and, and everything else. So we're definitely very glad you're here. I'm just glad Dr. Starlin hasn't scared you away yet. (laughs) <laughs> I was here before him. I mean, he had some work to do. Ah. So. <laughs> well, I was technically here first. I've been here for. Um, <laughs> you left. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only reason you came, right? Because you didn't have to. I heard this guy you. had left the organization. I was like, whew, thank goodness. Now I can take the job. And then he had to come back. I mean, really. <laughs> 
One other cool thing that I think you do that is probably more in Sarah's uh, wheelhouse than mine is you do a lot of social media uh, stuff. So you're one of uh, a couple of our colleagues that uh, are very involved on all these different media platforms that somebody old like me is just trying to figure out and has to ask uh, Sarah or somebody how to do. But uh, how did you get involved in that? And how do you see that playing a huge role in medicine in general, maybe ID, infection prevention, and certainly the pandemic um, as this has rolled on? Yeah, so that's a great question. One, you should give yourself more credit because I definitely have seen you improve a ton on social media since you first started. So, you know, that's a win. And look, you're hosting a podcast. Also, huge win. I'm learning from you. So I'm trying. (laughs) So I would say to start, you know, I I was a very early adopter of social media Um, from the very first platforms I had access to. I was on them. I was connecting with people. So for me, it was kind of a natural engagement across. And when I came on faculty here, we really did not have a strong presence um, for any of the divisions or even departments per se. And not a lot of the faculty were highly engaged in social media. The UNMC Nebraska Medicine as organizations had accounts. Um, So one of the things when I came that we talked about was how do we recruit ID fellows effectively to Nebraska? You know, I mean, we have a slogan that says it's not for everyone (laughs) for a state, right? (laughs) So like, how do you recruit people to an amazing medical center that they might not otherwise think of strictly because of geography. And the answer is people wanna go where they're gonna get fantastic training. They're gonna feel mentored, sponsored and supported and feel like they're really gonna be able to build a great career. And so in the process of really thinking about how to recruit, that's really where the initial division of infectious diseases blog started from. And then ultimately, when Dr. Marcellin came on and the two of us could work together, we launched our Twitter account. And really, we've just seen profound impact with that, both with, you know, having higher numbers of recruitment, but just also regional and national recognition of the division and the work that's being done, because we have been very proactive in sharing our publications, our media interviews, you know, culture of the division, our new faculty, as much as we can, highlighting our fellows and their experiences and what it's like to train here. And so I think that's been really beneficial. Um, And certainly that's led to um, a variety of different, you know, regional and national talks and publications and a multitude of different things that we've really been able to use pre-pandemic to help raise kind of the reputation and really the recognition of the amazing team we have. Once the pandemic started, we were really well established um, already (laughs) in the social media and media realms. And that just really, I think, got heavily leveraged. We had many staff who already did a lot of media with news and radio and newspapers, but it really expanded out to a lot more of our junior faculty with doing more Facebook lives or Twitter chats or, you know, meeting people on Reddit and doing, you know, and ask me anything, an AMA kind of thing about COVID and really trying to meet people where they're getting information, trying to provide expert information because it's so hard to determine what is good information and what is bad information right now out there. You can have a lot of information that sounds scientific, that sounds right, but isn't. And so we really 
I think have tried really hard as an organization at division and even just as our own individual faculty members to say, how can we be out there and try to provide that expertise and that understanding in such a rapidly changing pandemic with increasing you know, amounts of literature and data and things like the Delta variant that completely have changed the game again. How do we help people understand as much as possible? I know I, for one, I'm really appreciative of all of the information that you guys put out as far as the, the ID division is concerned. Um, Twitter is a really awesome resource that you guys manage. Um, if we have listeners out there that don't know where to find you on social media, where can they find you? So our division account um, on is we really only have a platform for Twitter right now. We also have a blog. So if you're if you go to your internet search engine, your friendly Google, if you will, and type in UNMC ID division, actually one of the top links you'll get will be to our blog. There's an a feed there that will have our Twitter account on there. Otherwise, we are um, UNMC underscore ID as a division. And for those of us who are faculty, um, we're actually on Twitter publicly using our last names, essentially. So you can find me by, my name is Kelly Cockett. Dr. Starlin has, you know, Starlin is part of his handle, Dr. Hewlett, Dr. Marcellin. Um, we all use essentially some component of our last name so we can be found either as a division or individually. That's great. Um, I am curious about your thoughts on social media because you're a social media manager and um, the really rampant problem of misinformation right now. Um, can you speak a little bit to um, what you've seen and maybe our responsibility as healthcare providers to help combat some of that? Yeah, so I think this echoes back to the idea that there's just so much misinformation and misinterpretation of information. And I think it's incredibly hard when you have rapid dissemination of a research article or an abstract or a single figure from a scientific article to understand what that means because it all has to be taken in context. Um, so we do see a lot of misinterpretation out there. We also see a lot of, um, for the good or the bad of it, the political slant that many things surrounding COVID have taken and whether or not all of those slants are fully based in data really needs to be reviewed before you decide you believe something. And I think that's made it increasingly hard um, during this pandemic to try and provide to the best of all of our ability interpretations of the data from experts who do studies and do research who understand the nuances of a study and what the strengths and limitations are and how you interpret science. And I do personally feel very strongly that as healthcare workers, we need to be voices and advocates for accurate information. I also will say that I think this pandemic has been exhausting for healthcare workers. I think there's been profound mental health ramifications. And I think there are times where all of us need to step back and we can't be that voice and we need to pass the sword or the megaphone or the Twitter account on to someone else for our own well being for a period of time. Because there are, you know, trolls and bots and personal attacks that come at you when you share that information and you need to strive to do our best, but we also need to realize that we need to help each other and protect ourselves and our sanity to keep going because we're not done. This pandemic isn't over. 
And, you know, it's not a sprint. Um, it's a marathon and we, we all need breaks from it. So I've certainly stepped back from media at times. I have stepped back from social media accounts, both personally and professionally, because you can only do so much. And I think we need to share that load. That's great advice. Yeah, I agree. It does get uh, very difficult at times. I've had to step away from some platforms as well, just uh, for my own sanity, uh, as you have suggested. Um, as part of your media work, what is uh, what all have, have you done? Have you done anything in any cool places or anything? Like we talked to Dr. Hewlett, who was on 60 Minutes, as I'm sure you know, which was pretty dang cool. But yeah. uh, what about you? Have you have you had any experiences like that? Um, I was on CNN. Hey, that's pretty impressive right there. Um, and I've done a few other um, kind of national and international um, written or magazine interviews. Um, so like I was quoted in the Atlantic and um, some other um, news sources from that standpoint. But I mean, I have done webinars, podcasts, radio spots, TV spots, um, Twitter chats, as we mentioned, social media things. Um, I've been on a variety of platforms in the last um, 18 months. And actually they did a count at some point and I don't know where I landed, but I've done hundreds of media spots when the PR people were trying to tally um, what had been done specifically related to COVID. So a lot. <laughs> the CNN was probably the funniest because it was also like the biggest deal, like to my family, like, oh my gosh, he's on CNN. So my husband literally has photos of my children standing next to a TV with my head on CNN so that it was like captured in time to be like, look, here's the one point in time your mom was kind of famous and kind of cool. Just so you know. <laughs> that is pretty cool. You got to you got to capture those moments and, and, and it'll mean something to them probably when they realize that watching news is probably something that they'll end up doing. But I imagine they're not probably watching too much news right now. Um, you know, it's, it's hit or miss. We don't put it on all the time at our house, partially because I just can't listen to all things COVID all the time. I just need to not have it on. Um, but we actually let them watch a lot of news, especially early in the pandemic. Um, and at points throughout it and, you know, they understand a lot of what's going on and they needed to understand why it was working so much and why that was hard for them. Um, and so they've, they probably understand more than a lot of other kids who, you know, don't have parents in healthcare as far as what I'm doing, why I do it. And, you know, what's up with COVID-19. So I know you have a really diverse background in what you do. Um, would you have any advice for upcoming uh, medical professionals if they're trying to decide like, what they want to do, what specialty they want to be in, where they want to go, um, just in general? Uh, yeah, I, I would. So I think there's a few things. One is um, don't let the pandemic scare you away from medicine and healthcare right now. I will agree it's been a hard time. It's been a trying time. But I think Dr. Starlin and many of your other guests and you, Sarah, would agree you know, it's been hard, but there's also been phenomenal moments in this pandemic of teams coming together, seeing fantastic outcomes and still finding fulfillment in medicine, if that's what you want to do. The second thing I would say is that you don't need to have a family full of people in medicine to go into medicine. And I think this is a really 
important piece for listeners who might be younger, who maybe aren't even in college yet or are just starting undergrad. You know, I'm a first generation college graduate in my family. And that doesn't mean that I couldn't get here and do that, even if I had to do things differently or work throughout undergrad, even worked sometimes during medical school to pay for things. It doesn't mean you can't do it. And so don't let anyone tell you based on your background that you can't be something or do what you want. And I think that echoes my third point is you do not need to fit the cookie cutter role of a job. I do not fit a role. I do not fit into the perfect peg hole. I did not follow the normal route or path. And that doesn't mean you can't choose something else. And it means people will tell you what you can't do and what you can do. And the people who tell you what you can't do are probably wrong. So make sure that you have people who are supportive. And if there are things you really want to do, and maybe it's atypical, that's okay. And go ahead and pursue those things because medicine is ever evolving. The historical silos and pathways of career training aren't there anymore. And there's so many different opportunities to build a niche in the areas that you love without feeling like you have to do something you don't love. That's great advice. Um, I think I can kind of echo that. I'm a little bit of a non-traditional IP. Um, I have that dental background and traditionally IPs are RNs um, and have been in acute care for much of their career. So, you know, I, I definitely feel your advice. Yeah, I think it's important for people to realize that not everybody comes from the same background. And I think there's a lot of stereotypes in medicine still. And we need to support the diversity of people in medicine. And we need different voices. And that makes us better. It does not, you know, doesn't always make it easier, but it makes us better. Absolutely. And those, I think it's really important that those non-typical individuals that you run into with those diverse backgrounds, they bring another perspective to whatever it is you're doing. Right. It's not, you're not going to get pigeonholed into this singular idea. You can have some outside context come into play. Right. Yep. We're hoping to highlight a lot of those differences and not think everybody has to be conforming to what you see as a physician on maybe TV or, or whatever. There's lots of different ways you can make an impact in healthcare and even infection prevention as mm-hmm. Sarah is a, is a definite uh, uh, role model for that being in dentistry and then going off and getting more training. And here she is now doing lots of great things with ICAP. So it's right. uh, definitely lots of things that you can do. Hopefully the, uh, some of the good things that come out of the pandemic is, is that maybe people will have more interest in seeing that they can make a difference. Maybe it will help in um, infection prevention and, and especially the public health arena that uh, mm-hmm. people that wouldn't have ever thought public health was important will step back and say, hey, you know, why was this all so complicated at first? And it's because, you know, public health doesn't have the personnel or the funding that it needed to deal with this initially. And so hopefully if it stays in everybody's minds, the next time this comes around, uh, which, you know, maybe not be COVID, but it's just given our recent history, the last 20 years or so, the likelihood of another uh, type of outbreak or pandemic seems likely. So we need to be ready for it. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's totally true. And I think recognizing also 
with clear transparency. It's never been more obvious how broken the American healthcare system has been from public health infrastructure to supply chains, you know, to just staffing capacity and, you know, really looking at now, not just, you know, the pre-pandemic discussion about burnout, but talking about burnout and moral injury. And now, you know, these concepts of languishing and what that means if we want to be able to maintain a quality of healthcare in this country that right now we've seen has deteriorated by, you know, mortality rates in this country. And so I think to get us back to where we want to be and even better, it's going to require change. And that's change that's being driven by the public. It's change being driven by public health, by our officials, you know, and by our healthcare teams. And we really need those voices across all of those avenues, not just, you know, the, on the shoulders of only those working actively in healthcare at this moment. So one question we always ask our guests is, what is the craziest thing that you have ever seen clinically? Yeah. So you were asking about this and I had to think because I'm like, what, you know, what's the craziest thing I've seen in the ICU or in medicine? Um, And a variety of things come to mind, but probably one of the most vivid, which to me is going to sound hilarious in my mind. It sounds so morbid, I'm sure to you guys, but was actually here um, at Nebraska Medicine with one of my trainees and we were rounding. I can, I can tell you what room I was standing outside of actually when this happened. And one of the residents came running up to me. was like, oh my gosh. And I was like, what's wrong? And he couldn't talk. And he was like flagging and pulling me at him. And I was like, what's happening? And he had been (laughs) been in a room seeing a patient who had just had a big abdominal surgery. So had a huge midline incision down her whole belly and she sneezed (laughs) and the incision broke open because the binder was off and it completely broke open and all of her intestines came out. Now, the patient did not know that this had happened. My poor resident was by himself in the room and had no idea like what to do about this. And was like, but they're out. And I was like, what's out? What is the wrong? <laughs> and so we're like, oh, oh, now I understand. But he was like, just so like flabbergasted. I was just trying to listen to her heart and her lungs. And then she sneezed and then this and like. Ah, and I was like, okay, this is kind of one of the funniest things I remember having happen. Not that I had unfortunately seen something like that before, but I had never seen it from the eyes of a resident or a trainee who had never had that kind of exposure and had this just, you know, catastrophic shock and awe of like, what do I do? How did this happen? <laughs> That's so funny. So now if we were to have that resident on and ask him what the craziest thing he ever saw, it would probably be that, right? <laughs> You know, I don't know. Um, that particular person went into subspecialty training and I promise you has seen multiple crazy things since. Um, so I don't know, you know, it could be traumatic enough to have blocked it or not memorable enough for that person anymore. It would be funny to know that would be like, so do you have any great memories of like training and things that were very um, cemented in your head? But for me, it, it was just, it was terrible for the patient who actually was fine. It was like, oh, well that sucks. Now what? <laughs> but like for the resident and to see that reaction and to be totally like at a loss, um, was a very, um, remarkable moment. <laughs> Not something you would forget, uh, quickly. That's for sure. No, no, mm-mm. <laughs> 
you know, so our whole team went, you know, I started calling the surgeon's cell phone to be like, Hey, you're going to have a problem you need to address. And, you know, we grabbed nursing staff. We managed until the surgical team got there and helped the patient, but, um, not knowing necessarily what to do or who to call, or even just the shock of having to respond to the unpredictable in medicine. You never know when something crazy is going to happen. And, you know, that's the beauty and the craziness of what we do. Agree 100%. And I think that's, as you said earlier, um, that's one of the kind of the draws to in, infectious disease and critical care is that you see a little bit of everything. You're not going to get pigeonholed. Not that I, I think cardiologists wouldn't say they're pigeonholed, but I could only admit so many patients that had chest pain in a given time when I was on call as a resident without being like, I got to go do something else, um, you know, or, or give somebody else uh, uh, their, their prednisone for their COPD exacerbation when they got admitted, since I know you said you loved pulmonary uh, medicine in general. So um, yes, the, the diversity, the, uh, the interesting cases, and then the fact that I think we can, um, you know, help people get put back together to some mm -hmm. extent. We, you know, we, the, the, the availability of antimicrobials certainly has changed the world into things that we can actually cure things that were horrible, you know, less than a hundred years ago. Uh, right. We can prevent things with vaccines and, and, and health programs that were um, terrible less than 100 years ago. And so that's the power of what we have through science and medicine in the world of infectious diseases and also critical care. I mean, you guys' advances in the last 50 years have been incredible. Uh, so I, I, kudos to everybody that's doing this. It, it's, and that's certainly what draws myself into it. And I imagine you as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's very satisfying to know that you can help people and you can help them truly get better. And I think the ever-changing nature of both infectious diseases and critical care is appealing. And, you know, there's always these memes or jokes that if you need a really good HMP, you call an ID doctor, right? <laughs> and there's also the meme of when you need the smartest doctors because you don't know what's wrong, you call an ID doctor. And I think that that is extremely true in the fact that we can call for all kinds of things. And it's not always how to treat this infection. Sometimes the question is, does my patient have an infection? And, you know, both in critical care and in infectious diseases, we can't let go of our internal medicine roots. We have to still be good at medicine as a whole to know the difference of, is it an infection or is it not right? Not every fever that burns is an infection and being able to discern that is not easy but it is also what we do and what we love about it. The, you know, the detective work and the cognitive um, capacity to really think through our patients and get to know them and try to figure out what they might've gotten exposed to or what conditions they might have. Um, and I think that's true in infection control in many ways. It seems very systematic and protocoled, but we are constantly looking at how do we do better? How do we help these ever-changing populations to keep them healthy and keep the hospital as safe of a place as possible for our patients? And what's the greatest technology? What's the newest thing? Is it something we can bring in and use and how can we help? And so I think, you know, in many ways we may be acquired or group that's not always recognized in the forefront until a pandemic like this. But at the same time, we are the teams that if we're doing our jobs right in infection control, particularly too, you never hear from us because everything's going well. 
you only, and so it's really like a silent, silent protector, but huge impact in the organizations. And when things don't go well, like in a pandemic, you know, we're at the forefront trying to figure out what to do. What is the science? How do we make good decisions? What can we innovate? What can we invent? How can we bring other technology to play to really help everyone? And I, I think that mix of ID and infection control, you know, and of course on my critical care side too, but really, you know, thinking about that, you have huge opportunity to be at the cutting edge of medicine and to be good at a lot of areas of medicine in ways that not every specialty has the same opportunity to do. Very well said. Very well said. Anything that you can think of that we haven't kind of addressed that you think uh, anybody would like to know about uh, yourself or views on medicine or anything? Oh, I think all my views of medicine are pretty well known at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Get a vaccine, you know, wear a mask. Delta variant can still cause problems for you. You can still get sick with COVID-19, even if you're vaccinated, but the vaccines work, they just keep you out of the hospital or getting really sick, which is important, um, which I think is like the dogma we're all following these days and trying to um, share. But um, personally about me, I don't know that there, I have anything exciting otherwise to share about myself. You know, I've got two kids, you know, I live in Nebraska now. We like it here. We've stayed. I think UNMC and Nebraska Medicine have been fantastic. And I think that anybody who is looking for training or faculty opportunities or infection prevention opportunities, any healthcare workforce opportunities, I think this is a great place that is likely still undersold heavily as far as the opportunities and the teams that work here. And the amount of support that I think in general, you will find across this campus um, of yourself and your colleagues is really second to none. Well said. So and another I think thing, are awesome. So I'm super excited that we got to do that. So another thing we always ask our guests, um, you know, we have tortured you now asking questions for about 45 minutes. Uh, do you have any questions for Dr. Starlin or I? Oh my gosh. Well, hmm. I should have come up with better ones in advance. No what have other What have other guests asked you? That's probably the question number one. We we get a lot of uh, a lot of that. I should have thought of a question beforehand. I don't know if we've had too much uh, lately. Okay, Harry Potter or Avengers? I'm definitely Harry Potter. Oh, that's such a tough one. They're all so good. <laughs> I'm a giant nerd, so you know, like both. Can I pick both? I can throw you Lord of the Rings, and if we need to really, split. oh, it's still so good. <laughs> Uh, Which also qualifies me as an extra nerd because I am throwing these out at you as my random question. (laughs) If I had to pick just one, I think that the MCU, um, Mm. my whole, me and my kids are big MCU fans. We always like are holding our breath for the next movie. So. So my, I guess my back then would be, although I've seen all of them on both sides, um, in medical school, I don't study well in silence. So I probably have watched the Lord of the Rings series more than most because that was my backdrop to every major test board exam since medical school onward. That was probably the first 
series uh, like adult books that I read when I was younger was Lord of the Rings was mm-hmm. uh, was that so that would definitely be on if you throw that one in there that one definitely wins for me there's there's not even that, a, that beats Harry even, Potter it's not even <laughs> close yeah so then is that like your um your memory mechanism you know like some people study with music or they chew bubble gum to help them remember like if we played um, lord of the rings for you right I, now would you like have flashbacks no i it'll it have nothing to, so i just um i don't do well in silence my brain runs like 110 miles an hour all the time so i usually need some kind of background distraction when i'm studying or i really struggle to do that. I'll just start thinking about other things. So the beauty of it is I now know it so well that I can instantly look up for like that 30 second clip that I really like, but I don't lose track of the story. And so I can study and focus and then just be like, Oh, I'm going to watch this second of the movie, you know, I'm going to watch this piece or do whatever. Um, and so it's really just a extremely well-known background, but I like, I'm not going to remember something from embryology. If you put it up, like there will be no flashback of that. <laughs> no memory trigger specific to you know some moment in the movies but more of um this is however it landed this is what i ended up watching over and over as i studied well thank you for coming on with us it's been a pleasure as always we will see how things keep evolving with this pandemic and we may have to have you on again in a couple months and see you know how things are looking and if there's been any changes and in uh, your work or your career or the pandemic or anything else that we decide to talk about at that point. Uh, totally fair you know where to find me I mean I can usually see you from my office almost it's right around the corner I think <laughs> <laughs> if I lean a little bit <laughs> that's awesome well we really appreciate your time today Dr. Cockett And um, for those of you out there listening, thank you for joining us for this hour. We will see you for our next episode of Dirty Drinks. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Dirty Drinks. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends if they enjoy Dirty Drinks.